Welcome to Peter the Water Dog Saves the Planet Peace Podcast. This is a continuation of John Muir's Studies in the Sierra, Chapter 2, Origin of Yosemite Valleys. As I mentioned, when we first started this reading, it has several references to his drawings, and one might wonder why we're reading something uh, for an audio podcast with references to drawings, but I hope that it will just cause you to access the full book, and the link to the book is in the show notes. Uh, it's the Sierra Club website, or you can also find a hard copy of the book at your uh, favorite online bookstore. Depth of Yosemite Much stress has been laid on the mere uncompared arithmetical depth of Yosemite, but this is a character of no consequence to the consideration of its origin. The greatest Merced Yosemite is 3,000 feet deep, the Tuolumne 2,000, another 1,000, but what geologist would be so unphilosophical as to decide against the identity of their origin from difference in depth only? One pine tree is a hundred feet high, lean and crooked, from oppressing winds and the poverty of the soil which nourished it, while another, more fortunate in the conditions of its life, is two hundred feet high, erect and vigorous. So also one Yosemite is three thousand feet deep because of the favorable sculpture of its rocks and the depth and number of ice rivers that excavated it. Another is half as deep because of the strength of its rocks or the scantiness of the glacial force exerted upon it. What would be thought of a botanist who should announce that our gigantic sequoia was not a tree at all, offering as a reason that it was too large for a tree, and in describing it should confine himself to some particular knotty portion of the trunk? In Yosemite there is an evergreen oak, double the size of ordinary oaks of the region, whose trunk is craggy and angular as the valley itself and colored like the granite boulders on which it is growing. At a little distance, this trunk would scarcely be recognized as part of a tree until viewed in relation to its branches, leaves, and fruit. It is an admirable type of the craggy Merced Canyon tree, whose angular Yosemite does not appear as a natural portion thereof until viewed in its relation to its wide-spreading branches with their fruit and foliage of meadow and lake. We present a ground plan of three Yosemite valleys showing the positions of their principal glaciers and the relation of their trends and areas to them. The large arrows in figures one, two, three show the positions and directions of movement of the main confluent glaciers concerned in the erosion of three Yosemites. With regard to the number of their main glaciers, the Tuolumne Yosemite may be called a Yosemite of the third power, the King's River Yosemite of the fourth power, and the Merced Yosemite of the fifth power. The granite in which each of these three Yosemites is excavated is of the same general quality, 
Therefore, the differences of width, depth, and trend observed are due almost entirely to the number, magnitude, declivity, and mode of combination of the glacial system of each. The similarity of their ground plans is obvious from a single glance at the figures. Their cross-sections are no less similar. One of the most characteristic from each of the valleys under consideration is shown in figures 4, 5, and 6 drawn on the same scale. The perpendicularity of Yosemite walls is apt to be greatly overestimated. If the slopes of the Merced Yosemite walls were to be carefully measured by a clinometer at intervals of, say, 100 yards, it would be found that the average angle they make with the horizon is less than 50 degrees, as shown in figure 7. It is not possible that the bottom could drop out of a valley thus shaped, no matter how great the upheaval or downheaval or sideheaval. Having shown that Yosemite, so-called, is not unique in its ground plan or cross-sections, we will now consider some of the most remarkable of its rock forms. The beautiful San Joaquin Dome in the canyon of the San Joaquin, near the confluence of the South Fork, looking south, figure 9, shows remarkable resemblance to the Yosemite Half Dome as seen from Tanaya Canyon, figure 8. They are similarly situated with reference to the glaciers that denuded them, Half Dome having been assailed by the combined Tanaya and Hoffman glaciers on the one side and by the South Lyle or Merced Glacier on the other, the San Joaquin Dome by the combined glaciers of the Middle and North Forks on one side and by the glaciers of the South Fork on the other. The split dome of Kings River Yosemite is a worthy counterpart of the great half dome of the Merced Yosemite. They occur at about the same elevation and are similarly situated with reference to the ancient glacial currents, which first overswept them and then glided heavily by on either side, breaking them up in chips and slabs until fashioned and sculptured to their present condition. The half dome is usually regarded as being the most mysterious and unique rock form in the valley, or indeed in the world. Yet when closely approached and studied, its history becomes plain. From A to B, figure 10, the height is about 1,800 feet. From A to the base, 3,000. The upper portion is almost absolutely plain and vertical. The lower is inclined at an angle with the horizon of about 37 degrees. The observer may ascend from the south side to the shoulder of the dome at D and descend along the face toward AH. In the notch at F, a section of the dome may be seen, showing that it is there made up of immense slabs set on edge. These evidently have been produced by the development of cleavage planes, which, cutting the dome perpendicularly, have determined the plane of its face, which is the most striking characteristic of the rock. Along the front, toward AH, may be seen the stumps of slabs which have been successively split off the face. At H, may be seen the edges of residual fragments of the same slabs. At the summit, we perceive the cut edges of the concentric layers which have given the curved dome outline, BB. At D, 
a small gable appears, which has been produced by the development of diagonal cleavage planes, which have been cut in front by vertical planes. After the passage of the main Tenaya Glacier in the direction of the arrows, small glacierettes seem to have flowed down in front, eroding shallow groove channels in the direction of the greatest declivity. And even before the total recession of the main glacier, a wing-shaped ice slope probably leaned back in the shadow and with slow action eroded the upper portion of the dome. All the rocks forming the south walls of deep Yosemite canyons exhibit more or less of this light after-sculpture, affected in the shade after the north sun-beaten rocks were finished. The south side of the dome has been heavily moutonnéed by the Lyell Glacier, but is nevertheless nearly as vertical as the north split side. The main body of the rock corresponds in form and attitude with every other rock similarly situated with reference to ice rivers and to elevation above sea level, the special split dome top being, as we have seen, a result of special structure in the granite out of which it was formed. Numerous examples of this interesting species of rock may be culled from the various Yosemites, illustrating every essential character on a gradually changing scale. Figure 12 is a view of the back or south side of Half Dome, Yosemite, showing its moutonnée condition. Figure 13 represents El Capitan of Yosemite situated on the north side of the valley. Figure 14, El Capitan of Big Tuolumne Canyon near the middle, situated on the north side. Figure 15, El Capitan of Big Tuolumne Canyon near the head, situated on the north side. The far-famed El Capitan Rock presents a sheer cleaved front over 3,000 feet high and is scarcely less impressive than the Great Dome. We have collected fine specimens of this clearly defined rock form from all the principal Yosemites of the region. Nevertheless, it always has been considered exceptional. Their origin is easily explained. They are simply split ends of ridges which have been broken through by glaciers. For their perfect development, the granite must be strong and have some of its vertical cleavage planes well developed, nearly to the exclusion of all the others, especially of those belonging to the diagonal and horizontal series. A powerful trunk glacier must sweep past in front nearly in the direction of its cutting planes with small glaciers, tributary to the first, one on each side of the ridge out of which the Capitan is to be made, this arrangement is illustrated in figure 16, where A represents a horizontal section of a Capitan rock, exposing the edges of the cleavage planes which determine the character of its face, B, the main glacier sweeping down the valley in front, and CC, the tributaries isolating it from the adjacent softer granite. The three Capitans figured stand thus related to the glaciers of the region where they are found. I have met with many others, all of which are thus situated, though in some instances one or both of the side glaciers had been wanting, leaving the resulting Capitan less perfect, considering the bold advancing Yosemite Capitan as a typical form. When the principal surface features of the Sierra were being blocked out, 
the main ice sheet was continuous and moved in a southerly direction. Therefore, the most perfect Capitans are invariably found on the north sides of the valleys, trending east and west. The reason will be readily perceived by referring to figure 8 of chapter 1. To illustrate still further how fully the split fronts of rocks facing deep canyons have the angles at which they stand measured by their cleavage planes, we give two examples, figures 17 and 18, of leaning fronts from the canyon of the North Fork of the San Joaquin River. Sentinel and Cathedral rocks also are found in other glacial canyons, and in every instant their forms, magnitudes, and positions are obviously the necessary result of the internal structure and general mechanical characters of the rock out of which they were made and of the glacial energy that has been brought to bear on them. The abundance, therefore, of lofty, angular rocks instead of rendering Yosemite unique is the characteristic which unites it most intimately with all the other similarly situated valleys in the range. Thank you for joining me for the Pater the Water Dog Peace Podcast. Until next time, sit with yourself in silence every day. That's self with a capital S. We are all scholars of peace. Peace and love to you all. You can read the full book, Studies in the Sierra by John Muir, at the Sierra Club site. The link is in the show notes. Podcast music is Dalai Lama Riding a Bike by Javier Peque Rodriguez. A link to his music on Spotify and Bandcamp are in the show notes. Support messages of peace in the planet by joining my Patreon for as little as a cup of coffee per month at patreon.com. Just search Avis Kalfsbeck or Pedro the Water Dog to find me. Pedro the Water Dog Saves the Planet books 1 through 5 are available at all your favorite online bookstores or at avaskalfsbeck.com. Book 1, One More Year, is available as an audiobook on all the audiobook sites with the other books coming soon to audio. If you enjoyed this episode, or are at least curious about the future ones, please subscribe to this podcast wherever you enjoy your podcasts. Thank you again. Listen for the peace. Peace.